1: I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Esther Amini. Esther's a writer, painter, and psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice. Her short stories have appeared in Elle, Lilith, Tablet, The Jewish Week, Barnard Magazine, TK University's InScape Literary. Proximity, Paper Brigade, and Zibby Owens Anthology, Moms Don't Have Time To. Had her on the show a few weeks ago, so look her up. She was named one of Aspen Word's two best emerging memoirists and awarded its Emerging Writer Fellowship in 2016, based on her memoir entitled Concealed, and we'll be talking a lot more about that today. Her pieces have been performed by Jewish Women's Theater in Los Angeles and in Manhattan, and she was chosen by JWT as their artist-in-residence in 2019. Kirkus Reviews has chosen Concealed as one of the best books of 2020. Chiflix, Jewish Netflix, is presently streaming an excerpt from Concealed called Amrika. Esther Amini lives in New York City with her husband, and Concealed is her debut memoir. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here um, first of all your book is is beautiful and and deep and captures an experience that doesn't always bit, get put in the category of grief but to me absolutely belongs in it which is people that leave their country and then how that impacts everyone going forward um, and so I, I really appreciate the opportunity to th- to put that in the category of loss and transformation, because it it does seem to um, fit so well in my mind. Um, Do you look at it that way yourself?
2: Well, I certainly can look at it that way because Concealed, my memoir called Concealed, is about growing up caught between two opposing cultures, one that my parents left, which was the city, the Iranian city of Mashhad, and the one that I was growing up in, in Queens, New York. Um, and it created many difficulties, uh, but there were also many humorous events. You know, So it, there's a hybrid here, it's a mix. Uh, but it is about, for them, leaving behind what was home and wanting to bring that city of Mashhad to New York City in the 20th century um, and the fact that it didn't fit in to what was happening in America during the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so caught between, my dream was to hold on to my parents, honor them, and at the same time, honor my own aspirations as a young American child growing up in New York City. And how do you do both? Um so yes there's loss involved there's gain involved there's finding that middle ground how do you navigate is it possible to hold on to both which was my mission in the book <laughs> and of course that very mission
1: to hold on to both um is is in some way impossible uh, you know it's in some way the book to me was about becoming oneself, and automatically both those things would be a part of becoming oneself. But I do know from working with first-generation clients from um, my son-in-law whose parents also emigrated uh, from, from Iran, um, it puts you in a kind of a vice sometimes, doesn't it? Those two forces being a part of where you are and honoring uh, where where your parents came from can be very difficult.
2: It can be very difficult. And in the book, I, I try to go back to what it felt like as a child, you know, as an eight-year-old. Actually, I go far back. I go back to when I was a toddler. I have very vivid memories. Uh, so starting with toddlerhood, going through adolescence, entering young adulthood, later on through much difficulty going off to college because my father was anti-education for women. So there's a lot about that and how I managed to leap over that barrier Uh, and eventually marrying my husband who I'm married to today, an American uh, man and um, becoming a mother having children myself. And so my perspective keeps changing throughout the book. So I don't really have one answer. Was it difficult? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it was also fortifying, which I didn't understand as a child. As a child, I just saw- That takes reflection, doesn't it? That takes reflection. And so I think with reflection, I realized how much I was forced to grow up and develop and find out who I really am, and use my potential. As a child, it just felt like obstacle after obstacle. Mm. So it depends on, you know, what stage of life we're talking about.
1: For sure. I'm going to have you uh, read a little from the beginning, because one thing that stood out throughout the book is the extreme contrast between your parents now, every two parents are very different people, right? But uh, your parents seem particularly um, to to have given you kind of different um, different ideas of what lo- being an adult might look like, <laughs> as it were. They they had some things in common, but. <clears throat> such different personalities and such Absolutely. different forces. So, could we could we share a little about your your mother? Who, I was thinking, because we're both psychologically minded, you know, I can look back on my mother and see how she actually did plant the seeds for the adult that I became, but I didn't realize that at the time.
2: Right, <laughs> you know, right.
1: he um, was fighting in the same generation you're talking about. To um, Make her mark in the world when that wasn't invited, you know, But I didn't realize how much I was taking from that until later. and i I felt that in the book from you as well. so let's yeah. let's talk about your mom a bit. Can
2: of you course. share that
1: part uh, from your sure.
2: chapter? Well, the first chapter, I don't know if it's going to really give you a sense of her. I'm happy to read from it. But before I do, just to give a little background, you know, she was an orphan. Her parents, her mother died giving birth to her. So as my mother went through the birth canal, her mother was dying. Uh, her father died when she was two years old. He died from tuberculosis in the city of Mashad, There were no doctors, no hospitals, uh, no antibiotics. And there, were, there was a lot of death in the city of Meshed. Um, and so she grew up not having had her genetic parents, having zero memory of her biological parents, was raised by Yochevet, a stepmother, and was forced to marry my father at a very young age, which was common at that time. She was 14, my father was 20 years older, he was 34, and she didn't know him. Uh, So she experienced many difficulties and She was also never allowed to step foot into a classroom in the city of Mashhad. Girls were kept illiterate. I keep emphasizing Mashhad because if you come from Tehran, it's a totally different story. Okay, so this is is a, a girl who was never allowed to learn to read and write. So the chapter begins, this is the opening chapter of the book. It's called Closet Full of Oscars. Born in 1925 Iran, Mom had been forced to live as an underground Jew in the fanatically religious city of Mashhad, a Shiite stronghold and pilgrimage site with a long history of maiming and massacring infidels. Head bent, breathing through a black chadur, peering through an isolate, she slunk through alleyways, faceless and shapeless, passing as Muslim. The chadr was more to her than just a cloth covering. It was the symbol of her suppression and target of her rage. Years later, mom told me about one sun scolding summer afternoon when she and her stepmother, Yochevet, were hauling sacks of fava beans home from the market. Both were heavily shrouded, properly groomed, Islamicized for outside eyes. My mother, 14 and recently married to my 34-year-old father, was already three months pregnant. As her cloaked face dripped with sweat, she spat out in Farsi, I hate chadurs. I'm ripping mine off. Why are we hidden? Why can't men look at us? We're allowed to look at their hideous faces, their bare arms and legs. Shh, Yocheva gestured for her to lower her voice. The imams are keeping us safe. A woman's lips, hair, elbow, even her ankle can drive a man crazy. If we conceal ourselves, men can control themselves. (laughs) de Mom cursed through blasts of sticky air and suffocating drapes. I'm not responsible for their unruly penises. Men should learn to lock their crotches. While chadurs were designed to hide women, hers incubated visions of a headlong and noisy break for freedom. Eight years later, she uprooted her husband and two young sons and spearheaded the family's fretful, lengthy, circuitous migration from Mashad to Manhattan. On the eve of their departure, mom lit a match and torched her black chaudeurs, turning heavy cloths and the weight of their meaning to ash.
1: I do believe that is the, the underpinning of the way that I got to know your mom in your book, which is that she had a rebel within her that would not be silenced. Yes, and and led to your whole family uprooting after generations, as I understand it, of hiding under the chador and and um, pretending to be Muslim and a kind of double concealment. You know, a woman hidden by a churur within the situation that they're actually not muslim they're actually hiding that too that mm-hmm. really stuck with me
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and to me many of the things that she did once your family came here are are the seeds of that are carried in that original story aren't they
2: yes they are yes yeah she was larger than life and even though she was 20 years younger than my father and he was he was a very uh Strict, traditional man uh, who was set in his ways, uh, she outmuscled him. Um, and she was she was unconventional in so many ways. She was unlike her peers. Uh, I think many of the women from Mashad, who eventually came to New York and settled in our neighborhood in Kew Gardens, uh, found her. Oh, inappropriate to, to to put it mildly. mildly. <laughs> uh, you know. This was, she was not the way a woman was supposed to be coming from Ashad. She was outspoken, defiant, rebellious, irreverent. Uh, followed her own will, her own thinking, right or wrong. And many times she was wrong, but she only needed to validate herself. She didn't need the outside world to validate her. And there were always naysayers around her. And she would just laugh in their faces and move on. Uh, a very including unusual your, woman. In, including
1: your father. Uh, he was so interesting to me because on the one hand, you know, stern, stern bark. On the other hand, he caved a lot. <laughs> um, he didn't want to leave, did he? He did uh,
2: not
1: want to leave my shed. And, uh, you yeah. know, he yeah. had, many things he did in his life she won in the end and and also you uh to be a person I was I was really tickled by uh one of the pictures in your book um after reading you know that he didn't want you to read and he kept stealing your books and all then I see a picture of you and he reading together (laughs) you know he could not defy the 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 fierceness in you and your mom, but I'm sure it didn't feel like that as a kid.
2: It didn't feel like that as a child. No, it felt like, I mean, I was, I was very frightened of my father. Uh, With my mother, it was different. I, she was unpredictable and that frightened me. She uh, had mood swings. And when she was upset with my father, she would run away from home. And so I watched her run away. A lot, and as a child, I kept feeling she was running away from me. I personalized it all, uh, but it was really their marriage that was an, an unhappy marriage. Uh, but my father, you know, as a child, I experienced him as stern, austere, rigid. Uh, he forbade speech in the home. He forbade books. He didn't want me to read. Uh, He came from a culture where girls were not educated and they were married at a very young age. My grandmother, this is my father's mother, was nine years old when Mm. she was forced to marry my grandfather, 20 years older, who was 29. So nine and 29. Illiterate. My grandmother had never stepped foot in a classroom. This is what he knew and this is what he knew worked. And with greater perspective, I understand him. That America was terrifying to him. He Absolutely. experienced it as a hedonistic country, amoral. Everything and anything goes. The destruction of family life. This is how he saw it. As you know, as, as a country that destroys healthy, wholesome family life. Um, let's let's come back to that because
1: I don't want to shortchange it and it's about time for a break. So let's go to a break and then we'll come back in a minute to talk a little more deeply about your dad in this. Okay. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America and to find Esther Amini, go to estheramini.com and it's E-S-T-H-E-R-A-M-I-N-I.com. Be back soon.
0: find out what's happening on the voice america talk radio network by keeping up with us on twitter you can find us at voice america trn
1: this is good grief host cheryl jones whether you're in grief crisis deep loss or transition working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else that's why i'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Open my heart.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Esther Amini about her book, Concealed. We were just getting to know your dad before the break. Yes, um, and I've, you know, obviously I have not met your parents; they're long, long dead, and yet I feel that I have. You, you, there are so many stories that seem to capture the, the. Um, sometimes when we when we talk about someone, uh, even someone we know well, it's a little one-dimensional. You know, the the most, um, the top line quality they had, if mm-hmm. we're looking back, is all that we get to know. Yes. But I feel with your parents, I got to know their contradictions, um, that that they weren't all one thing. And um, it it felt like you became more and more aware of that as you developed as a person.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you're saying that, because that was really important to me. I didn't want to simplify them uh, because they were a bundle of contradictions, each of them, which is what kept me curious and kept me loving them because I saw their strengths and I saw, you know, their tenderness at different times and when it came out and how they came through for me in different ways. Mm. So I stayed Connected, emotionally connected. And at some times I was horrified, you know, also by the behavior. So I wanted the reader to feel the complexity and then to be able to understand why, you know, I was confused and why I continued observing and listening and trying to gather clues as to who they really are because they were intriguing to get back to my father. You know, on the one hand, he may have appeared like an ogre to me as a child. Um, he didn't want me to have friends over. He didn't want me to read. He didn't want me to speak. <laughs> so you would say, oh, my goodness, this is horrible. On the other hand, as a child, he was he was like the most nurturing person I knew when any of us would get sick. Mm. Um he was, he was my mother, Teresa. Uh, mm-hmm. If I had a low grade fever or a high grade fever, or I had an appendicitis attack, or it was just a cough, it didn't matter. He was even keeled, he would think well, he would sit by my side, if need be, get the doctor, give me the medication I needed, and keep comforting me until I finally became healthy again. My mother, who was terrified of illness, and for good reasons, she would fly out the front door. She could not deal with any kind of illness. Oh, and later sense. in life, I understood why. Mm-hmm. In the city of Mashad, someone became ill, and very often they would die. So illness, you know, you connect the dots. Illness and she death. lost
1: both of her parents
2: and she lost both of her parents uh,
1: one of my uh, kids is germphobic, because I, th- I think because of her early losses
2: yeah you know <laughs> yeah yeah but when you also live in a community where people are giving birth and dying they have twins what happens they're they're, they're about to birth twins there are no c-sections. They have triplets, there are no Mm C-sections. Do you know how many women were dying in childbirth? So she was faced, she grew up facing death over and over again. Um, So a cough would frighten her. Of course, as a child, I didn't know any of that. All I saw was that she ran out the front door Uh, and my father was there reassuring, nurturing. Um, He had a very sweet side Mm-hmm. And he viewed himself as the protector of our family. And when that's I what wrote- was
1: coming to my mind as you were speaking, just that they they came from the same source, protectiveness. But in one case, he was protecting you from what he couldn't protect you from. You know, trying to keep you safe in a way that wasn't going to work in the context you were actually in.
2: Uh, Yes and no. Yes and no. Because there's the chapter where I decide that I'm going to marry the postal clerk. If you remember that one in the post office. Yes, I do. And I am completely in fantasy land. I'm a teenager. I've never dated. I never had a boyfriend. And I decide this man who's very sweet, I go and buy my stamps in the post office and he's very sweet and he's actually coming on to me, and he's much older than I am. Um, And I create a whole fantasy in my head as to who he is. I do not know anything about him. Uh, And it turned out that he sent me a letter and I never got to read the letter. My father would go through our mail before it ever reached us. And my father was outraged and went to the post office and really gave him hell. And I was humiliated. How could he do this? And later in life, I realized, you know what? I think he saved me. Mm. So it was another example of being saved, even though it was done in a rough and raw way. Mm. um, He was protecting. He did not trust the outside world. And sometimes he was right.
1: Well, and of course, he he was born into and lived in that. If you are hiding your religious practice and yet continuing to practice it, and it's dangerous for the world to know that you are, you would get very good at that kind of outside is dangerous, but inside we can, we can be softer. Yes. But wouldn't that just naturally come along with it potentially?
2: I think that's very true. I think that's a, a very succinct way of putting it, and it's accurate. The outside is dangerous, The inside can be soft and tender, and that's what I had. I I saw this outer shell, which repelled me. His outer shell, and his interior was lovable.
1: Very confusing for a child. We can understand better at our ages now, can't we? That's right. That's right. So then you get basically old enough to, for both of them to think it's time for them to pick someone for you which must have seemed very out of place, <laughs> and so, you know, given who you were around in your New York life. Um, is the Friday night cleavage story sort of a part of that? Could you share
2: that? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a chapter called Friday Night Cleavage. And keep in mind, I'm 10 years old. Uh The lavish parties Mom and Pop gave when I was 10 were entirely different from the one in Albert's apartment. Albert is my older brother. It seemed Pop's business had grown and he was now doing well again, importing and exporting pickled cow intestines. On Friday nights, our dining room swelled with Persian merchants, jewelers, newlyweds straight off the boat, grieving widows and widowers, and Iranian students headed for colleges across the nation. Mom, drawn to homeless countrymen, anointed herself a one-person welcoming committee. As soon as she heard that some rootless Iranian immigrants had set foot in Queens, the hapless transplants were hauled in for a Shabbat, Sabbath dinner. They brought with them hearty appetites fond memories of Mashhad, Tehran, Shiraz, Isfahan as well as respect for and distrust of Anglo-Saxon American, America. While men expressed gratitude for the chance at prosperity this country offered, they also through their male gaze found fault with American women, deeming them unnatural, masculine, loud, and much too free. My mother would knot my hair in a bun, dab my cheeks with rouge, and seat me sandwiched between college-bound bachelors. I was on exhibit for the young eligible Iranian men and cast as a potential bride. It didn't matter that I was 10 and they 20. Didn't Tuti, my grandmother, marry at nine, and mom at 14? And wasn't Pop 20 years her senior? Mom's unspoken goal butted heads with mine. Stifling horror, sending telepathic messages, my eyes drilled into hers. These goons come from a foreign planet. I don't like the way they smell. They smell like Iran. And remember, I'm pulling A's so I don't have to marry. A deal I had made with myself. The Iranian students on either side of me avoided my jutting elbows just as I avoided theirs, and we never talked to one another, mutually fearing benign conversation would be misread as, I want you. Hmm. Matrimony was a leaden cloud hanging over my head. When Pop's eyes caught mine, they sternly advised I stay quiet. He believed the less a female said, the more likely a man would fall in love with her. He drew from his own experience. Didn't he fall hard for mom and quickly decide to marry her before he even heard the sound of her voice? He'd seen her holding court, making other women laugh, but he'd never heard her speak, knew nothing of her sharp tongue. Crazy, I told myself, rejecting his belief, never suspecting that one day it would become my own. And, he, you know,
1: it, it, there's such an irony in that because he chose her without knowing anything about her, just based on looking at her when she wasn't speaking. And he wasn't very happy. No. <laughs> but, he, but he, you know, uh, more was revealed and it didn't make him happy. And yet he wanted just the same for, yes. for you. It was. Yes. Only important that somebody want you, not that either person end up happy,
2: would you say? Well, uh, I think the assumption was that, that we would end up happy. That, think- that he would choose better or, you know. That he would choose better. That he would know because you know the family, you know the grandparents, you know, these these families know each other's histories who the great-grandfather was and how he behaved and what his personality was. And and therefore, they felt they knew character. And by the time it became the young man who might be interested in me, they knew enough about his background that they could decide. You know, I think really knowing that particular individual well was not as important. Not as important. And the other thing that I, that
1: I, I just put together in my head is, The his um, marriage was the result of his rebellion, wasn't it?
2: The only time he rebelled, (laughs) Cheryl—the first and last time—he was a traditional man. Did not turn out well. Did not turn out well (laughs) for you, yes, for him, not that well, did it? (laughs) I agree. You know, I think that distinction needs to be made. I mean, for him, it was not a happy marriage. But for me, it did work out well because I had someone who was the diametric opposite of my father. And there is something fantastic about that. Growing up, it was difficult. But as I grew older, even during adolescence, I began to appreciate the fact that there was a window. It felt like there was an open window because they never agreed. They always locked (laughs) horns it forced me to start thinking independently. Like, you know, is this one right? Is that one right? Maybe neither of them are. Do I have to figure out my own solution? They weren't a united front. And uh, it's, it's interesting because very much in America, there's this belief that parents should be a united front. They should decide behind closed doors as to how they're going to approach a subject, come back in front of their child and be united. Mine were always at odds. And I never experienced the United Front. And in a way, it was a very healthy experience. Because well, I, it, and it ha- opened me up and made me have to do my own thinking.
1: And also, I I I want to say that your brothers felt almost like the heroes of the story at moments. <laughs> that, Absolutely. That they were a third... Idea of how to navigate, and of course, they knew the most of of everyone about how to navigate the, you know, Mashahad and and New York, because yes. they had already gone through that themselves. Um, they they just seemed like such intelligent brothers. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that they saw that you needed to go in a different direction and they and they cultivated it in you, it seemed absolutely.
2: to Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when they arrived in the United States, and this is right after World War II, you have to keep that in mind, they arrived, the family, this is my parents, my two brothers, I wasn't born yet, they arrived in New York in 1947. Uh, they were pilgrims. Uh, There wasn't a Jewish community in Queens waiting for them, gradually that developed. Uh, And this is way before the Khomeini revolution in the 1970s, when thousands came to the United States. This is early, 1947. And my brothers were very young, Uh, Albert the eldest was eight, David the middle child was five, Uh, and they quickly learned English. You know, they went to public school and they became the negotiators. They negotiated with the plumber and the electrician. They translated for my parents. They wrote out bills, which happens very often with first-generation Absolutely.
1: Children. Very familiar story, uh, being the navigator. There, there's actually a recent movie about a deaf family where the child is hearing, and it has a lot, uh, the name of it is CODA, and it has a lot of similarities the being yeah. the translator for your family, which therefore means your family gets dependent on you. Absolutely, <laughs> you know. Um, it's time for another break. So let's come back to that. How how these different pictures of how to become an American <laughs> um, led to what you did. Let's let's talk about that after the break. Listeners, you can go to my website weatheringrief.com or the good grief host page as I mentioned before, and to find Esther Amini, you can go to ESTHERAMINI.com. Be back after the break. <laughs>
0: what's
2: happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN.
1: This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. This is your host Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Esther Amini about her book *Concealed*. And Esther, during during the break, which I feel relates to what we're we're planning to talk about here, um, I was mentioning that uh, that a personal experience that allowed me to identify more with your experience was coming out in in a family that was uh, they weren't. As conservative religious as some people, they were liberal, but my dad was a minister. There was there was expectation, and that um, that interesting um, choice that I think a person who doesn't fit into the paradigm of their family has to make between being oneself, becoming oneself, figuring out who that is, and um, keeping the approval. Of your family, keeping the 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 keeping in the comfort zone of your family. Um, and i I was thinking how much more intense uh, your situation seemed than mine. Uh, but still, I did identify with that dilemma.
2: I, I appreciate you bringing that up because my book has been receiving a great deal of attention, and I've been getting emails from around the world. And this from people who are not Jewish necessarily, are not female necessarily, certainly aren't Persian. And they say, I relate. And I think you hit on exactly the skeletal structure that is making this book, I think so important to people of various backgrounds, be it gender, be it their sexual orientation, be it their religion or, or atheism whatever it may be i think the theme is fitting into trying to f- trying to find a way to either fit into the paradigm of one's family or discovering that you can't fit into the paradigm of one's family hmm. and then what and especially hmm. if you don't want to throw away the family let's say you still Absolutely. You want that connection you you recognize certain aspects of the family that you that you love, that you value. You don't want Plus to... You love the humans. You Plus love the you humans. love the humans. Plus <laughs> you love the humans. You may love the humans. You may love aspects of the culture. There may be certain values within the culture that you certainly want to carry on. And yet you don't fully fit in. And and the whole... I mean, and it, it can be humorous as well. I mean, it can be painful. It can be poignant. And it's also humorous. It has the mix. And I think many, many readers have identified with exactly that dilemma when they say the book speaks to me.
1: Yes, and then the other thing that that comes on top of that is I've noticed that people who have struggled with that, um, then there's more of an invitation in other areas too. For instance, I've talked before on the show about uh, the cancer groups that I've run, and I noticed I was running groups for women, and I noticed there was actually a difference between um, women who had gone through an identity crisis, like we're talking about, and those who hadn't. And the ones who had, their question tended to be, um, how do I respond to this? How will I... You know, how will I incorporate this into my sense of myself? And the, the women who hadn't were tending to say, who am I now? Uh, <laughs> it was a really stark difference. Now, I, uh-huh. haven't a, I haven't done a study on it, but it, was, it bore out, uh, <laughs> you know, over many groups that I ran. And so, for instance, when you ended up being very, very unhappy in the marriage that was chosen for you you actually could make room for leaving it where, you know, and I feel that sort of rests on top (laughs) that you had already incorporated an identity that wasn't just what your family was planning for you. Do you think those
2: are connected? Are they in your mind? I think you're bringing up a very important point. Um, When I ended the first marriage, which was with an Iranian man uh, that my father had vetted and, and approved of. Um, when I ended that, I didn't know who I was, but I knew what I wasn't. <laughs> so maybe that's the beginnings, you know, uh-huh. of being able to say, I can't be that woman. I can't be that. But who am I? I'm not sure. And uh, I actually wrote a little piece about that in the book, where I'm kind of trying to put my disparate parts together. Um, but it is the foundation. When you begin to know what you're not, you, you're left with, well, okay, this is, I can begin to define myself. I'm certainly not that. Um, that
1: that's feels so familiar to me, Esther. Um, you know, well, I've, I've tried being heterosexual. I don't think I'm that. <laughs> You know, and then it took a while to figure out. Well, then who am I? You know, that's very familiar, uh, in in some baseline
2: kind of way. Right. And in my case, it was I tried to be a deferential, subservient, quiet wife, and I could not. I could not, and in fact, it led to feeling suffocated, and it, it led to feeling I don't want to live. I mean, I can no longer live this way. Um, so that propelled me. So the, the marriage ended, and my mother stood behind me, and this was another one of her phenomenal gifts. You, to me, you, because, because You lived out her desires, perhaps. I think I did. I think <laughs> I did. And she used to say, I burnt I no want you burn, And it was all about her life having been burnt. And, and so she said, you have a second chance. She said, I never had a second chance at life. I want you to have a second chance. And so, you know, the Mashadi community uh, at that time found it very shameful to divorce one's husband. This was not acceptable. It's not like within the American culture. There was a tremendous amount of shame attached to it, uh, and my mother would kind of like spit in their faces and give it back to them, and basically tell me to go out there and live my life. Um, and she paid for all my legal fees. Uh, you know, <laughs> my father, he, he, he just he wanted to die. Uh, he he went right back into his bed, which is what he would do when he'd get extremely depressed. And he, it was, it was like a, uh, a suicidal wish of like disconnecting himself from food, from drink, from people. And he just felt like this was so shameful. He did not want me to take that step. And again, I understand him today. At the time, I was furious. But today, I understand him. And, and,
1: and also, you have, the, you have the benefit of seeing that he eventually got through it.
2: He got through it. And uh, later in life, I, I married the husband I'm with today, my American husband, Ira, and he adored Ira. And for good reason. Uh, Ira really knew how to be with him and knew how to show honor and respect, uh, understood almost intuitively. I never had to teach him or train him, you know, and he intuitively he sensed what my father needed and gave it. Uh, and my father also picked up that this is a man of integrity. And this is a man uh, who's gentle and kind and truthful. Um, All the things that you
1: had to verify for yourself yes. <laughs> before <laughs> before you chose him. He's another
2: yeah. hero, isn't
1: he? <laughs> yes, he is. I and mean, your my brothers.
2: They were my brothers. And then there's Ira. Absolutely. And they have
1: a similar bit of a bit of a similar quality in my mind. Uh-huh. In <laughs> yeah. what way for Absolutely. you, Sheriff? What's that? In what way? Uh, acceptant, encouraging, uh, wanting you to be the person you're meant to be. Um, able to roll with the punches some. Um, uh, Very I true. guess that's it. Very true. Before we get out of your, here, will you share just one more a little piece of the book so people sure. can hear just a little more before we're done for today? Of course. Um,
2: this is after I divorced, and I'm trying to pull myself together, trying to figure out who I am. And I I used to write in my journal a great deal, and here I'm once again writing in a journal. What does it mean to claim me, to make me mine? My self-description stirred confusion. I was a mix that didn't add up, a poly-hyphenated self, an Iranian, mashadi, American, Jewish, educated, divorced, female. There were too many selves, in sync and in odds with one another, clashing cultures, spliced together, causing commotion. As a child more than anything i had wanted to be seen and known as american with no trace of henna rosewater or farsi yet within me living two lived two sparring spirits when i stood among iranians i felt like a fraud yet in the company of non-persian americans couplets from ferdowsi's epic shahnama and rumi's mystical verses thrummed through me ground beneath my feet, kept shifting, throwing me off balance. I think I'll I'll just leave it at that.
1: You know, I've thought a lot about, uh, in the course of being a psychotherapist for a long, long time, um, the difference between fitting in and belonging. And I feel that once you are intent on belonging, you have to be yourself. There's no way to belong and and try to be someone else. That's a fitting in requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wondered at at what point it became a relief to claim being yourself as the goal, you know, that then you can be all of it and the people who resonate with you aren't going to require that you be one or the other. Did did that at some point, it seems as if it, it came clear to you because you seem very much yourself with all those parts. But I wonder if you think of it that way.
2: Well, it was a process. It certainly took many decades. It's an ongoing process, I think, that feeling of becoming integrated and feeling that you have a cohesive self I certainly feel that today, but I think with every decade, it strengthens. Um, And uh, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling, but it does take time. Number one, you have to want to integrate yourself. You have to be invested in it uh, and therefore you, you become more conscious and, and, and you try to pull those disparate parts together and you accept them as all being a part of you, that you don't have to be homogeneous. You know, they can live on they can each live in a lane of their own and be a part of you. Uh, and that there's something fantastic about that also. The multiplicity yes. of a self
1: I feel uh, I, I've read some about it personalities of generations uh, different generations I feel a kinship with you in the generation of breaking out <laughs> people did that in all kinds of different ways but um, the period where you were in the co- in college at Barnard is probably the same period that I was um, uh, anti-war protesting and you know it's and there was a to me, an underlying rebellion in that period that maybe made it easier to consider the things that have then informed your life and my life, you know, <laughs> that you that you kind of figure out who you are, uh, whereas my parents didn't figure out who they were, you know, until way, way, way into their adulthoods. They, they just lived and, you know, tried to, they rebelled in certain ways, but I don't think they... Did in the same way.
2: Well, that you know, that may have been that. true for you, Cheryl, but I think that whole period when I was at Barnard <clears throat> and there were uh, anti-Vietnam War demonstrations going on and girls were burning their bras and it was a, a revolutionary time. Intellectually, I found it all very interesting. Emotionally, it frightened me.
1: It uh, frightened your rebellion me. was being there at all, though. <laughs> it's, is what I think, you know, that took a lot to be a person who was never supposed to learn to read and then to be a student living in the dorms at Barnard. Yes. (laughs) That was enough. That was enough. (laughs) That's where we're going to have to leave it for today. Thanks so much for being here. I've really enjoyed it. What a pleasure. Thank you, Cheryl. You're so welcome. You can find Esther Amini and her book at E S T E T H E R. A-M-I-N-I dot com. Next week, I'll have Maria Kefalis here to talk about her book, Harnessing Grief, A Mother's Quest for Meaning and Miracles. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.